we are in a series called Free, and uh, what we're talking about is what makes us, we're, we're a free Methodist church. You might not have known that. We don't, free Methodist isn't in our name, um, and, and so what makes us free? Like, uh, people will say, hey, aren't you a Methodist? And I will say, well, actually, I'm a free Methodist, and the free is very, very important to us. It is our identity. It is at the core of who we are. Last week, Nina talked about our first freedom, and that's the freedom for all races to worship together. And uh, back in the day, um, uh, the, the, the Methodism was, was growing and growing and growing, and we talked about this in our history class uh, last Wednesday. It was growing, and it it, it changed from being a movement to an institution. And this, is, this happens with almost every movement. All of a sudden, people get into power, and then they want to keep that power, and then they make up rules where they stay in power, and no one else can be a part of it. And that's what was happening to the Methodist church. Sadly, uh, what was also happening was that it was segregated. So white people would sit in the front, and anybody of color would sit in the back or stand in the back. The founder of Free Methodism is a man named B.T. Roberts. I should have had a picture, handsome man. Um, It was just driving him crazy. And so uh, the average Methodist pastor during that time had eight slaves. Pastor. I know, you're thinking to yourself, how is that even possible? And so B.T. Roberts started causing some problems because he saw that the injustice in that. And, and uh, so he began, he wrote an article uh, about uh, abolitionists and uh, got, got in trouble. And so he started free Methodism. Well, the, the second, the, another freedom that we have is the freedom for the poor um, to be treated with dignity in the church and with justice in the world. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Uh, what would happen back then was wealthy people would lease their pews. So, so uh, like, let's say Lisa has her chair there, and she pays for that chair, and if all of a sudden you come in and sit in there, uh, you wouldn't be allowed to because that's her chair. By the way, that is her chair. Don't sit there, okay? Uh, I just want just to make that super clear right out, right out the gate, okay? I won't be sitting next to anybody else but her. But, uh, so that, that would be it. But, but what would happen is the wealthy, it would, it, this was their family pew, and it was just all about honor. And I mean, that's not why we go to church, you know, for attention and to show how much we give and all that. Jesus spoke against that. As a matter of fact, one time B.T. Roberts, back in those days, the pastor would only pastor a church for three years, and they'd move him to another church. And, uh, um, and so one of the churches that he pastored, he told them, I'll pay off the church's debt if you make it a free church so that anybody can come and sit anywhere. And they didn't like that because people in power like their pews. Okay. And so, uh, that, that was the case. So this morning I want to talk a little bit about the poor. And I don't know what your background was like. Um, my background was my history, family history, is we, we've had it both ways. Um, we grew up, I grew up in a little town called Wachung, New Jersey. Uh, it was um, uh, wealthy, and my dad would commute into New York City. He was a financial analyst, and uh, we belonged to a country club, and it was great. Life was awesome. Uh, it, it, it was all white, 
right? Which right now freaks me out, but when I was a kid, you didn't know either way, and so um, everything was going, going great, and my dad's alcoholism caught up to him, went, bounced from job to job, and he ended up uh, lo- losing uh, all of that, but the Lord got a hold of his heart, and uh, he gave his life to Christ, and he became a pastor, and we moved out to California, and where we moved was not wealthy, and it was not white, <laughs> <laughs> and so I grew up in this, just the tension of ha- leaving wealth and privilege to being a minority, essentially, in, uh, in where I lived. And we were on, um, we had government assistance for our food. And one of the ways that represented itself was I had a little card that I'd take to the public school, which allowed me to have a lunch every day. And so I would have my card and... Um, what would happen is when I'd pull out my card, all the other kids would make fun of me and call me poor and, you know, your parents don't make any money and all that, which was hilarious because they were just as poor as I was. But I don't know why they didn't have a card. It's a great card. You should get one. Uh, uh, it's like, I can give you the, you know, the, the paperwork. You just fill it out, turn it in. You get a card, you get a hamburger. Like, what's going on? But... That feeling to me, I can still muster that feeling up. You ever have anything in your past that you've gone through? And when you think about it, oh man, it's like it's just happening all over again. I can go and get those feelings and drum them up pretty quick. And I would hide my card. I, mean, I wanted to eat, so I'd hide it, and I'd try to get it. But they, they, you know, back, they, you know, now you just scan something. But back in the day, it was like, click, you know. And the, the lady would be like, hey, do you have your card? I'm like, ah, yeah, here, <laughs> if you want to just get it, you know. And so I, I, knew, I knew what it felt to just be in need, to be singled out because of my socioeconomic standard. Well, now uh, it's different. Um, uh, my parents are still in the same the same 800-square-foot house they've been renting for 40 years. Uh, but my brother's moved on. I've moved on. My sister's moved on. And so as I, we think about poverty, oftentimes we think in terms of just the poorest of the poor. But poverty can be anything in the sense of what makes the person other than you. You could live in the Hamptons, Right? And you live in the Hamptons, but then yours is the smallest house, and you didn't have the education, and you got, and so, so, so it's other. And so what I want to talk about this morning is what Jesus has to say about uh, this in particular. What do we do with the one that is other, the one that is lacking? Depending on where your political views lie, you might think that the wealthy, we, we put them all aside, we skim off a whole bunch of their stuff and we give it to the poor. Maybe that's, maybe that's your political belief. Maybe you're like, nope, the wealthy get to keep theirs and they should keep more of it and they shouldn't be taxed on any of it and whatever. And the poor are there because of decisions they've made. I hope by the time I'm done this morning, you'll remove that from your equation. That the poor are there because of decisions they've made. The poor can just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You have to have boots first to be able to do that. And so I'm not liberal. I'm not conservative. So hang with me. All right. Uh, last week we talked about race. I wish I, uh, I, wish I was here. Um, I was camping with my son, but I did see it. This is so amazing. I'm camping with my son, growing a manly man beard. And 
I got, I got Facebook Live on my phone. Uh, he was, it, it, was, it was really fun. So um, I, I, I thought this proverb was pretty cool. There is one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. Have you ever met that person? They drive a super nice car. They live in like a, a studio apartment. Uh, another pretends to be poor but has great wealth. That might even be you thinking, I, never, I don't have any, I don't have any, I don't have anything. And you don't realize that when you take a global perspective, we are ridiculously wealthy people as a general rule. Now, you might not have as much money compared to somebody else in the congregation or in your neighborhood or at work or whatever, but trust me, if you're an American, if you're living in America and surviving, uh, you're doing quite well. Um, I like to say, if you've ordered an Amazon box and it shows up and you forgot you ordered it, you're rich, okay? You ever done that? I did that the other day. It's like, Amazon's here. I, I, th- I thought I won the lottery, and I realized, no, oh, you paid for that to come here. I didn't know what it was. I opened up. It was a book, so that was good. I remembered. Um, so, so here's what happens. Um, Jesus is going to talk about this. What do we do with the person that's different, the other, the, the one that might be lesser than, the one that is found in a predicament? And what is happening, just to give you the context, Jesus is a rabbi, okay? And these other rabbis have their schools of thought. They're, they have their own disciples. And it was an honor-shame society. And so you, you would give the rabbi all this honor. And then the rabbis would battle it out. Like when they'd see each other. It was like a little like camps of thought. And they, they'd do what, what they call uh, challenge and repost. And so a rabbi would walk up, they'd be like, you know, the gang members or something, you know, and they'd walk up the two rabbi camps, you know, and the the one would ask the one a question. And the idea in challenge and repost was never to get backed into a corner because then you would have shame and your disciples might be like, man, my rabbi can't even hang with that rabbi. This is lame. Let's go find another rabbi. And so this is what was happening. Well, this is what happened to Jesus. Jesus finds himself in a challenge and repost. Now, let me just give you a hint. This is free. Write it down. You don't have to pay extra for this. Don't challenge Jesus, okay? Just, just don't. If you're planning on it today or you thought you had something good, just, just don't even start. He's going to jack you up. He really will, okay? He's smarter than you, and, he, and uh, you know. So here's what happens. This rabbi didn't get the memo. Don't challenge Jesus. Or maybe he thought he was pretty good. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Again, bad idea. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is the challenge. How Jesus responds to this is very important for how he appears. Now again, Jesus doesn't care because Jesus isn't like all the other rabbis, but this this is where they're at. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? So that's like a fade down and then uppercut, right? So it's like, this is what it's like. It's like these, this sparring. Well, well, this rabbi, this teacher of the law, this expert, if, depending on what version you'd say, uh, a lawyer, and it, they didn't have, it's not lawyer like the way we have lawyers. Like the, they, they weren't like running around chasing down camel accidents, trying to get uh, <laughs> money or anything like that. They were, they were experts in, in, in reading the, uh, the Bible, in the law. 
So he has the answer. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This challenge and repost has ended about as well as it can. Nobody loses face. Everybody kind of flexes their muscles and shows what, what, what they can do. And so it could have ended right there, and that would have been fine. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, how do you read it? Uh, they say, love the Lord your God um, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus replies, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. In other words, this idea of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you buy into that, your eternal life starts now. That, that will transform your life. If you truly love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, that is a good life. That is a great life. Will that life have problems? Absolutely. Will, the li- will that life have uncertainty? Absolutely. But this is the life that God calls us to. And so it's just pretty cool to me that Jesus is like, you got it. That's it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so the challenge and repost ends. Everybody's happy. They can all go home, break for lunch, whatever. Ah, except the guy can't let it go because he wants to be the one that takes down Jesus because no one's been able to do it so far. Number one rule, don't challenge Jesus, okay? So here's what he does. But he wanted to justify himself. All right, he's got his disciples there, and the, maybe they're mumbling like, is that all you got? You know, come on, let's, let's go. I'm, we're ready to go. You're just going to let it end like this? Don't let him talk to you like that. Come on, bring up something. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? It's a good question. It's a good question for you and I. I have a neighbor. I like my neighbor. He's great. Ralph is his name. I love Ralph. But is he the only one that's my neighbor because he lives close to me? This man asks, who's my neighbor? Jesus starts off with a parable. And I can just picture this poor guy. Well, no, not poor guy. Don't challenge Jesus. Uh, where he says, he thinks he's got Jesus in this thing, like, who's my neighbor? Ha ha, bet you didn't see that coming. And here's how Jesus responds. A man was going down from Jerusalem, which I can just picture this guy going, oh no, he's, he's got one of those stories. I thought I had him. I thought I had him backed up in the ropes and he just like squirts out from the matter and turns around, bam. Okay, maybe fighting Jesus isn't the best word picture, but I, you know what I'm trying to say. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Now, this is very important. What has the man done? Nothing. He traveled a road that everybody travels. We call it down to uh, Jerusalem, down to Jericho, um, because you're going downhill and there's lots of windy roads. And what would happen is robbers would, would hide out and then they'd rob you, okay? And um, so you always went with somebody and what, what, what have you, and you, you, you tried to go during the day and all that. But the man didn't do anything to end up in this predicament. He was just traveling. We, now, we could point to him and say, uh, 
I wouldn't have traveled that road. I wouldn't have gone at that time. I wouldn't have done this. I would have brought a knife. I blah, 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 whatever. But the fact of the matter is, he's done nothing. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. This is the situation this guy is in. Half dead. Now, this is where Jesus (laughs) starts to twist the knife. It's a violent sermon, isn't it? Uh, Twist the knife just a little bit. Knives and punching. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Organized religion just failed this man. And maybe for you, you've had organized religion fail you. Maybe those of you watching on Facebook Live, you're watching because organized religion has failed you. I'm sorry for that. But organized religion has failed this man. But God has not failed this man. And so he goes on now, and again, to give the priest and the Levite some some leeway, if they thought the man was dead, they would have had to have walked around him anyway because he was then unclean and they could not touch him. They would become ceremonial, uh, uh, ceremonial unclean. Okay? Um, and so this is what happened. And then Jesus goes, oh, man, makes it even worse. But a Samaritan. Now, you've got to understand how much the Jews hated the Samaritans and how much the Samaritans hated the Jews. Okay? It's like... Um, it's like a New England Patriots fan and a Raider fan, okay? It's like one's always winning. Oh, wait, no. Uh, okay, so. So, a Samaritan. It would be like if, 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 if this was a room full of Democrats and I said Barack Obama walked right, right by the guy. Hillary Clinton walked right by the guy. But then Rush Limbaugh, and you just go, oh, man, come on. Or if you're Republicans, and I say, uh, uh, you know, George Bush walks right by, Ronald Reagan walks right by, but Rachel Maddow comes off of, you know, it's like you just, just inside your gut, you'd be like, ah, give, uh, Rachel Maddow, ah, she's the devil. Watch this. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, let me see if we can underline that. As he traveled, he was on his way somewhere. He was busy. This was interrupting his life. He was, had a destination. We don't know if he was going to do some business in Jericho, if that's where he lived. We have no idea. But the guy was on a journey. Let me just tell you this. The people who you help are probably going to be obstacles for you the people that you help out those lesser than maybe the poor maybe those who need a help a helping hand who need a leg up they're going to be an inconvenience that's just the nature of it and as believers in christ we need to get comfortable with inconvenience we need to get comfortable with the holy spirit bringing these divine moments to us to where we drop everything And we say, I'm in a rush. I got stuff to do. And we drop it. We say, but I'm going to help this person instead. This is the free part of free Methodism. The freedom 
for the poor to be treated with dignity. That they're not less than us. That we're not too busy for them. That we're not, you know, I'll just wait till I retire. Then I'll give all my time to this or that. We just want to pay off the house. And then I'll I'll give all my, uh, yeah, I'm going to do that. These moments come daily, weekly, monthly, where there's somebody who by no fault of their own is in this, this situation. As he traveled, he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. When he saw him, he took pity on him. This is your first step. <laughs> because if, if you find yourself going days, weeks, months, and there's people in need around you, and you don't even feel that, that's where we need to start with at least having the sense of compassion, at least praying to God again, God, break my heart for the things that break yours. God, I know you love the poor. I know you love the other. I know you love the widow, the orphan, the alien, the foreigner. Break my heart. Put me in a place where I I see this and I take pity. That I'm, they're not just a number to me. They're not just an overwhelming, like, well, I don't know what to do with the homeless population. They're just everywhere. Well, well, they shouldn't have gotten started in drugs in the first place. Like, can we get to a place where our heart is broken for that? Regardless of their situation, through no fault of this robber's own, he ends up naked, beaten, half dead. And the Samaritan, the one if he looked on the outward, he'd go, oh, that's a Jew. I'm I'm not. Serves him right. Serves him right. He takes pity on him. Doesn't stop there. He went to him. Pity's great. And if you don't feel pity, I... I hope God does break your heart. And that's good. But pity alone doesn't accomplish anything. There has to be action. There has to be some type of moving towards. There has to be some type of uh, uh, trying to, seeking to understand where these people are coming from, what they actually do need. He goes to them. He bandaged his wounds. Pouring on oil and wine. Oil would keep the wounds moist so that they could continue to heal. The wine was an antiseptic. This guy bandaged this bloody enemy, essentially. This person who was so much other than him. So different. Now, if you're like me, I I, I always try to put myself into the Bible. And I probably would have had someone else do this part. (laughs) Okay? I'm like, here are the bandages. Okay, and then I like got my Purell, and I'm like, all righty. Well, let's see. Let's hope he can put those bandages on himself, right? This guy's knee-deep in it. He sees him. He takes pity, and he goes to him, using his own oil, his own wine, his own bandages, all the things. He was prepared for the trip. He could have easily said, well, dude, you should, you, should, you should have your own oil and wine and bandages. You should have been prepared like I was. This is your fault. It's not my responsibility to fix your bandages. 
I'm taking care of my own bandages. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. This is such a distraction. This is such an inconvenience. It's costing him a day. It's costing him his supplies. He's now not on the donkey. He has to walk. It's become more difficult. The journey's become more difficult for him. Remember, this is a story Jesus is making up. That's how important it is to him. See, sometimes we think of parables like, oh yeah, it's just a made-up story. No, he's in charge of all the facts of what's happening. Because he wants to get the point across. This guy is prepared. He's ready to go. He's on his way. And because God loves this man so much, he uses a Samaritan to save him. Takes him to the inn. This is what he says. The next day, so now it's cost him a day. He took out two silver coins. It's costing him time. It's costing him money. It's costing him inconvenience. It's costing him his it's physically hard. How did he get the guy on the donkey? You know what I mean? I mean, it's just all a big pain. He gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Man, that is bold. Who knows what this innkeeper is going to do? Innkeeper could be like, oh, we're doing the deluxe spa treatment. $1,400, two cucumbers later, and it's like, uh, it's like yeah, we, we took great care of him. You know, he says, any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus just wraps it all up. And he asks this lawyer, which one of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. Notice Jesus' question. Instead of who's my neighbor, Jesus says who was a neighbor to this man. See, I wonder if we should stop asking ourselves who's our neighbor And ask ourselves, to whom do I need to be a neighbor? To which person that needs my help, needs my resources, my finances, my time, my uh, uh, attention? For some people, you know, it might not cost any money. It's just you find other, those who are maybe poorer spiritually, poorer emotionally, poorer financially, and you listen to their story. Jonathan and I have the privilege of being here during the day. And, uh, um, you know, we'll get visitors on campus. And oftentimes those visitors aren't in the best, they, they just have too many needs than what we can possibly do for them. Sometimes we can help them out with food. Sometimes we can help them out with a little bit of money, depending on what we have in our wallets. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, um, so, uh, but it's when you begin to hear their story. They just aren't a number anymore. It's Ty. It's Michelle. It's Stephen. And they have families, and they talk about their families and how they haven't seen them. 
It's just heart-wrenching. They're not just a statistic anymore. I was talking to somebody, they were wondering, how come every time I see a homeless person, they have a cell phone? Eh, it bothered them. That makes sense. You know, you're like, you know, shouldn't they? Well, the reason they have a cell phone is because their family can't help them out any more than they already have. So all they can do is give them a cell phone and pay their bill every month so that if they get into trouble, they need something, they can call. They can look for a job. They can, they're not paying the cell phone. They don't even have a house to get the cell phone bill, okay? It's not like they're hoarding money away so they can use their cell phone. There's a family behind that person. The expert of the law answers correctly. Who is the one who it was the neighbor? The one who had mercy on him. Jesus says this. It's amazing. He says, go and do. Go and do. He doesn't say, oh man, great answer. God, that was good. That was rich. Thank you, teacher in the law. Uh, you, you, you're so smart at everything. He says, go and do. Now, here's my just challenge to you. Because when we talk about poverty, we talk about homelessness, we talk about all these different things. It can get overwhelming, right? I mean, I've literally sat down and thought, what would I, if I had to solve homelessness, what would I do? And I'm like, I got nothing. <laughs> like, it's a hard topic. It's difficult. There are some people that are there on their own and want to be there. There are people who have tried to get out. I mean, there's all these things. When you hear their stories, there's no one cookie cutter. So here's a little rule I got that I got from another pastor named Andy Stanley, whose church is just a tiny bit bigger than ours. Uh, and uh, he has this rule, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Everyone is overwhelming. And you'll ask yourself, what good, what good am I going to do? What good could I do the, the, for homelessness, for poverty, for those who are, if, if we even bring it more, um, uh, maybe emotionally poor. They're just difficult to be around because they lack self-awareness. How am I going to help? Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. We... Uh, at Toys for Tots, we, we do these letters to Santa, right? And uh, I, I read a bunch of them when we were done. Uh, we ended up counting all the numbers and everything. So there were 720 kids that we gave uh, Christmas to. And, then, and a lot of them did the letters to Santa. And um, we were just so, it was just such a thrilling thing to be a part of bringing shalom to, to these kids, and we work with the schools to make sure we get the kids who need it the most, and the schools are thrilled, and it's really, I think we worked with 25 schools, 22 schools, something like that. Well, I got this letter from Santa, and it had the list of everything they wanted and all that stuff. But this kid, Juan, put his address. So I thought, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. So, through our uh, Toys for Tots, um, you all, through all your giving and all, got every single one of those gifts for that kid. <laughs> I got, went on Amazon, I got a list. It wasn't huge, a little remote control car, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, a Razor scooter. I think the whole thing was 125 bucks or something like that. 
And so I wrap it all up and I sneak over to his apartments. He's in the worst area of Garden Grove. And I show up, you know, one of these things is not like the other, okay? I'm like the only white dude. And uh, so I, I'm in there, and they're all looking at me like nervous because, yeah, I'm intimidating, right? So, uh, and so I've got, this, I've got this big box, and it's all wrapped up. And so I'm like, how am I going to get it? I don't, want, I don't want him to know. I don't want him to know. Uh, and so I, I, uh, I'm sneaking around, and finally I, I see this lady, and I ask her, uh, hey, do you, you know, is Juan home? And she said, no, they're, they're off. I said, can you do me a big favor? This is, this is a gift. Just can you make sure he gets it? And please do not tell him. I told her I was the pastor at Living Spring and the, through the generosity of our church, and we just wanted to bless Juan. We wanted to do for one what we wish we could do for everybody. And so she got it, and uh, I left. And I wish so desperately I could have somehow put something there to see this kid's face when he gets every single gift that he could have. But that was just me being selfish, right? Because I wanted to feel good. We just did for one what we wish we could do for everyone. What if you went and did? Like Jesus said, go and do likewise. Who would you pick? What would you do? Forget about solving homelessness across Orange County. Think about one thing, one person. You, do, you, do you fill your car up with uh, socks and T-shirts and jackets and a little meal thing, and then you're just driving around? Is, do you do that? You go home this week and do that? Get a little stack of them, and then you know, anytime I see a homeless person, if the Lord puts them on my heart, as I travel, I'm in a sense pity, and I'm going to go to them. And I'm going to say, I, I can't do much, but I can do this. That's the heart of God. That's his heart. His heart for the poor. His heart for the disenfranchised. Because you know what happens when God sees us? You know what he sees? He sees sinners in need of a Savior. It says in the Bible, you think you're, I mean, not for you guys. It was talking to me. You think you're wealthy. You think you're smart. You think you don't realize you're naked. You're blind. You're poor. And you're wretched. It's like you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't get that. When we do these things, when we do for one what we wish we could do for anyone, we are doing the same thing. We are taking the heart of God and we're saying, heal.